Welcome back to the Send 938 podcast, a ministry of Baptist Missions designed to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American, Asian, and South Pacific Ministries here with Baptist Missions. Joining me again today in the studio at the Global Ministry Center is a man I just affectionately refer to as Dad. Dr. Gary Anderson, President Emeritus of Baptist Missions. Good to have you back, Dad. Thanks. Nice to be back. As always, you have uh, prepared for us a piece of history of the mission to share in uh, what I hear regularly from our listeners or some of their favorite episodes where not only do they get the story of the mission, but they get to listen to you tell the story, which is both intriguing and inviting. So um, I understand you've you've given a little bit of thought to some of the dynamic changes that have taken place over the history of the mission and the way that uh, the mission has, in many ways, endured that. So what have you prepared for us today? Yeah, I, th- I think endurance is probably a good term. Um, I've also used the word resilient. This month, you know, will mark the 103rd birthday of Baptist Mission. It's right. October 15th. We celebrate every year the birth of the mission, October 15th, 1920. So the the mission, by God's grace, has been particularly resilient. I think it has weathered change and shifting paradigms uh, over a century in a manner that can only be attributed to the grace of God. Um, I was fond of saying when asked as president, what's your biggest challenge? Uh, I suspect that oftentimes the question was asked thinking that I was going to talk to him about a particular field or, or maybe something going on globally, but I generally answered it in a broader respect, saying that that my biggest challenge as president is to guide the mission through ever-changing times that are increasingly complex. Mm-hmm. I uh, I marveled at how many changes we faced, with very few of them immediately representing improvements. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they represented, for the most part, they represented things that created challenges for us. It um, might have been viewed even as as hardships, road bumps. In the long term, many of those things resulted in our being able to do what we do better, but they were circumstances and maybe global events that forced us to have to rethink not only why we were doing what we were doing, but how we were going to continue to do what we'd always done, but do it in a different way. And the truth is, uh, modernity and its effects in, in terms of progress in things like travel, communication, medicine, all of those things represent uh, a world that is certainly better. I, I guess that's the right term. We live in a better world today than those missionaries that went out with the first group in 1920. Yeah, more, more areas of greater ease. Yeah, uh, but it has also, it, it has, the progress without question has accelerated the pace at which we live our lives. So, for instance, when uh, Haas and that first group went out, they they spent weeks on an ocean liner getting to Europe and then ultimately into the center of Africa. They used that time profitably. They team-built. They established uh, esprit de corps. They studied the language. They had Haas as a coach in terms of, of understanding the culture they probably had uh, 
They had, as a result of, of days and weeks together on an ocean liner, they had something that very few modern missionaries will have when they arrive on their, their field of service. So I, there isn't any question that getting on an airplane and flying a few hours as opposed to getting on an ocean liner and sailing for days or weeks, it's a big improvement. But there's typically a price that's that's paid for progress. But none of us, none of us would want to go back to 1920 and do things the way those who were in the first group of missionaries ever to serve with Baptist Missions had to do it. Most listeners will relate to the most recent experience of uh, um, imposed change, yeah, and that's in the form of the COVID pandemic. I had the the opportunity during those days to be filling in. Uh, our church called our pastor, excuse me, our mission called our pastor to be our mission's president. And so I I think the church may have felt like uh, the mission owed them one, so they asked me if I'd fill the pulpit during the time <laughs> that they were looking for a new pastor. And it just happened to be during those those months of the pandemic. Yeah. And I watched our pastoral staff really scratch day after day, week after week, trying to make sure that all the the bases were covered, even though they were having to do almost everything in a manner that was different from the way they were accustomed to doing it. In many ways, same thing transpired uh, in other institutions, such as Baptist Missions. There was a great deal that had to be sort of uh, massaged to make things work at a time when travel was really restricted, uh, interaction even in churches, meetings meetings being canceled, uh, deputation being stalled. Those things were difficulties, but they, all in all, we look back on that, that time now and we think of it as a time when we probably will benefit in the long term from much of what, what was imposed on us. But this is the type of thing that I'm talking about. When, when things in the world in which we serve, when those things change, we either change with them or, in the case of many institutions, uh, we go out of existence. And I praise the Lord that for 103 years, by the grace of God, Baptist Missions has endured. They've proved resilient in the face of, of massive change. I think some of it probably is the, uh, the outgrowth of the way the mission was forged in its, in its earliest efforts it came into existence in 1920, which was a zenith of liberal theology's deleterious effect on missions. Um, for the most part, missions was being abandoned by the mainline denominations. Our founder did what he did in starting the mission, primarily because he couldn't find an agency or, or a group of churches willing to sponsor the kind of work that he felt he was called to. And he saw beyond those current circumstances the potential that, that resided within independent Baptist churches, even though there undoubtedly was only a handful of certified independent Baptist churches in the entire country at the time. Right. But he, he was able to see beyond. I, I've sometimes referred to William Haas as a descendant of Issachar, who is referred to in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 12.32 states that the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what to do. <laughs> it's a wonderful quality, and uh, yeah. Haas, Haas had a considerable measure of it. In seeing beyond what the current circumstances were and understanding there was a potential 
for what has now been sustained by the grace of God for over a hundred years. Um, he started the mission on the heels of World War One. World War One was was finished by 1918. 1920, the mission was birthed. It was not necessarily a, a time of prosperity, neither here in the United States nor around the world. Less than a decade into the existence of the mission, the Great Depression, 1929, uh, Second World War, less than 20 years into the existence of the mission, 1939. Those were days when, as the mission was... was uh, moving from conception into legitimate, um, I guess, early strength. It all, it all occurred within the context of global challenges that were really quite significant. And I, I wish one session was enough time for us to go into details of what individual missionaries endured during those, those times, uh, Travel during the Second World War, for instance, was almost non-existent. Getting money overseas yeah. was almost impossible. The, the the missionaries serving in third world countries were were doing so without medical care or the potential of being evacuated to get medical care. There are so many things which the individual missionaries endured during those days, and it was largely their endurance that resulted in the mission continuing to exist beyond those times of, of tremendous challenge. Yeah, because when, when we talk about the endurance of the mission over the 103 years, we're, we're not talking about the, the endurance from an administrative level. No. We're talking about the, the body of the mission, which is, in fact, those on the field, those who we here in the global ministry serve on a day-to-day basis. It's their resilience that has proven sufficient. Yeah, and if, if anyone was ever aware of that, it was me during my years of the presidency. I I traveled in abject anonymity. People didn't know who Gary Anderson was, but as soon as I told them I was identified with Baptist Missions, they began to rehearse with me the, the names of missionaries with whom they were connected, people that had impacted their lives or in whose ministries they, they had some part. That's and funny was, because when I tell people who I am, they say, oh, are you Gary Anderson's son? <laughs> Well, I'm I'm stunned. <laughs> I, I tell them every once in a while, I, I apologize for having a last name I don't have to apologize for. <laughs> well, I I marvel at the measure of character, the, the depth of wisdom, the the unflinching fortitude of the leaders who preceded me in offering guidance to the mission. Haas as our founder, Emmy Hawkins, pastor from Indiana, who was the first president. The first three presidents were all volunteers. They, yeah, they right. did what they did is they were actually tertiary presidents. They served a, on, a, on a governing council and, and acted as president. That would include Emmy Hawkins, Robert McCarthy, George Milner. Arthur Fetzer never held the, the title of president. But he was CFO and COO, and he was a friend to every missionary, no matter where they were around the world. He, he resided here in Cleveland and did, he did a, a gargantuan job here in the administration before the first full-time president was ever named, 1960, Alan Lewis. His successor, Raymond Buck, I, Dr. Lewis served for 23 years as president. When, when I came into the, to the presidency, um, 
almost a, a decade later, I said his fingerprints were still all over this ministry, and they were wonderfully so. I want to back up for before we move on from that, because what you just said is is uh, it's worth noting. From 1920 to 1960, there was not a full time president of the That's mission. right. It was a it was a bare bones skeleton crew kind of operation. Yes, out of out of Cleveland and before that, local churches in various states that housed the operations of of Baptist Missions globally. Yeah, that's right. When Arthur Fetzer became uh, CFO and C- Chief Operating Officer, um, he oversaw the operations of the mission in that post Second World War period, where we sent out. 300 new missionaries over a five-year period and financial support for the mission and its missionaries increased 500% in those years. And with that kind of growth, the mission recognized that it needed full-time executive leadership. And Dr. Alan Lewis, who had served on the council, like, like so many others before him, he had served in leadership on the council, but he was called to be the first full-time Full-time president, yes, 40 years from its founding until its first full-time president. I've often said of my uh, predecessor, Dr. Raymond Buck, no one had a more impressive resume. I had the privilege of serving side-by-side with him for 26 months. I became the COO, chief operating officer, while he was the chief executive officer. He had two theological degrees. He had a, a doctorate of education. He he had served... Uh, He'd served masterfully as a pastor. He'd been 10 years overseas. He had been a theological uh, professor within one of our earliest training institutions in Central Africa. He had served the mission in in a variety of capacities, including representing us on the road. He had been field administrator for Africa and Europe. He'd been VP. You put it on a resume, you, you could not improve, frankly, on a resume for a leader of the mission. I have tremendous respect for these men. But the resilience of the mission uh, has demonstrated that it's it's not up to the men at the head or, for that matter, even the missionaries in the field, that everything that the world and the prince of this world has thrown at the mission for over 100 years cannot and should not be attributed the success of those of those days should not be attributed to anything short of divine providence and God's superintending influence and his blessing on this ministry. Haas said it best when in the earliest days, and you know, he only lived four years after starting the mission, so he didn't have a long tenure. But in his days, he was overseas, and he desperately needed the promotion of the mission here in the United States for the sake of personnel as well as resources. But he his directive was, take my name off of all promotion of the mission. This must be known as the work of God. And I'm, uh, we have arrived at, a, at our 103rd birthday, and I'm, I'm in a place of tremendous respect for those, those leaders, knowing that if they were sitting here today, they would say the same thing I am. This should all be credited to the hand of God in both fashioning this institution and sustaining it through these many years. And frankly, as much as any leader in the mission's history, I'm proof that the survival of the mission is not hinged on its leaders. 
I've uh, spoken of of my entrance to the presidency in 1989 in one of these previous episodes. Uh, it was a time of tremendous turmoil. It was it was at the end of 1989, right at the, the in the last few days on Christmas Eve of 1989, Liberia fell in the civil war, which lasted for over a decade. And at the same time, the very next day, Christmas Day, uh, uh, the communist dictator in Romania was executed for crimes against the people. It was the last of the Eastern Bloc countries to declare democracy after almost a half a century of communist oppression. And those days were days of tremendous change. And what happened in Eastern Europe had a direct impact on what was going on in Africa. I've described all that in a previous episode, so I won't go into it now. If you're listening and you want to find that episode, it's titled 1989, The Year That Changed Everything. It did. And so when I came into the presidency— uh, the upheaval globally, the upheaval was in many ways unprecedented. And I can tell you it forced us to rely on God in a way that I felt was very healthy in, in my own personal experience as well as in the life of, of the mission. But uh, about a dozen years later, I had reached uh, a point where I really had uh, expended all of my energy. And um, it's a time that I'm not at all proud about. I I, uh, I have rarely ever spoken publicly. I thought long and hard about speaking about it today uh, because it's it's not a time that I look back on. In, in fact, I can tell you that I have a bit of a cold sweat just talking about it. It was a very difficult time. It was a time when we'd gone through about a year and a half of some absences and key positions in our administration, which had added to my load. That had been significant. It was a time when we were dealing with a major medical issue with your sister, our youngest child, our only daughter, which was very difficult for me. And when when on the morning of September 11th, 2001, when all that occurred and I was called from my office to come watch as uh, some of our staff had pulled a TV out of our, our media center out into the break area and, and our Almost our entire office personnel were gathered around the TV, and I stood and watched the twin towers of the World Trade Center collapse. I turned and walked away, literally sick to my stomach. And uh, that afternoon, called to a to an emergency at school with joy. I came back to work the next day, but before midday, I had to go home. I was. I was spent, and I didn't come back for three months. I left work not knowing that I wouldn't be able to come the next day, <laughs> certainly not thinking that it would be months before I'd be able to return. Um, I never required hospitalization, but I can tell you that I was, I was worn out. And the mission was so very generous with me. But here's, here's the point. The world was in crises. The United States had just suffered the only attack on its own soil that it had ever suffered. There was so much uncertainty. And in the midst of all of that, with personnel all around the world, 
who to one degree or another, now don't get me wrong, it's it's not like they're they're not a bunch of dependents. They're not high maintenance people that require the home office to tell them how to live their lives or serve their Lord. But they're all expecting a, a certain amount of of uh, guidance and reassurance and and uh, a degree of continuity from what goes on here in the office. And in that moment, the leader stepped away. Now, it wasn't that the mission was without leadership. I praise the Lord for council members who st- stepped up. My own administrative team circled the wagons. Uh, they they divvied among themselves responsibilities that had to be taken on without any warning. And in some cases, uh, some of them had to do things they'd never done before. So it wasn't that the mission was without leadership, but the leader was absent. I couldn't do anything about it. I, I you know, I... There was a degree of worry about what I was doing and what it meant for the mission. But I think of of those days and what followed after three months, I was able to come back. I came back part-time. I'd I'd come in for a few hours a day. I did that for another month or or two before I really settled into a full-time assignment. So it was five to six months from the time I, I left on September 12th until I was really back in the saddle as I needed to be. But I look back on those days and and uh, think of how God provided for us in that time. You know, I, I've never had one member of the governing council, I've never had one member of the home office staff or my administrative team, never had one word of criticism. So it's not like I bear a burden of guilt that has been put on me by by those who have criticized me. I've never had anybody criticize me, never once for which I'm very grateful. But I think of those days and what they meant in me rearranging my own priorities, uh, my own reliance on God and and what happened in those days that, that made me more reliant than I'd ever been. And when I came back, I came back with a, a sense of a vision for what might happen. I, I considered myself having been given a second chance when I was allowed to come back. And I determined that uh, with a second chance, I couldn't take a chance on either spoiling or wasting any of it. And it was, it was that approach that resulted in almost immediately our beginning a strategic a, a corporate strategic planning exercise, which I think has been very profitable. Dr. Odo is currently launching his own strategic planning initiative, which I think is very, very healthy. It it turns the attention away from things that are being thrown at you every day to things. I The way I put it was I, I want to quit putting out fires and start lighting a few. <laughs> and it's the difference between just fending off everything that's flying at you every day and taking up each day with the approach that this is going to take us one day closer to what God has given us to do. And I think the key to any organization like ours doing strategic planning is allowing God to fashion your dreams and your ambitions. And if, if in fact, it's, it's God-fashioned and it's more than just 
your vision. It's, it's the will of God for you in the institution. So I, the last 13 years of my time in the presidency, I think we're more fruitful, uh, more long-lasting benefit than the previous 13 years. But it was at a time, we moved through a time when I didn't know. I, your grandmother, my mother-in-law, said to me about half t- halfway through my sabbatical, she said, when will you go back to work? I said, I don't know if I'll ever go back to work. And it wasn't just a, a casual comment. I lived with that question on my own heart and mind for a couple of months. And to be on this side of it, and look back at what a difficult time it was for the world, for the mission, for me, for our family. And then to see what God has done. It, it would take a fool to ascribe any of that to, to human endeavor. It has to be the blessing of God. So in, a, in the 103rd year of the mission's existence, my thoughts are being drawn to Psalm 103, which begins with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, and forget not all of his benefits. And it's been a a century and a little more of God's provision that has made this institution capable of enduring what it's endured. The resilience has been beyond human. It's been supernatural. And it's God's blessing that I'm grateful for today as we sit here and talk about that moment in history. Praise the Lord. Well, thanks for joining me again today, Dad. It's an encouragement to hear not only your rehearsal of what God has done through the mission, but what he did in your own life and administration here. I lived those days, and hear you talk about them again is once more a reminder to me of God's grace in our family's life. If you've appreciated what you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a note at send938 at bmm.org. And as always, leave us a five-star rating and review in whatever streaming platform you're listening on to help others find this, the Send 938 podcast. And we'll meet you back here next Wednesday.